Cinderella, Sunny Stella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. This week we're going to talk about our ongoing series of packing for success, in that we talk about how various pieces of equipment that you can carry with you can be a really big bonus towards the success of your mission. In D20 Modern, we have feats, but in a lot of cases, equipment can be used instead of feats. For example, if you want to be able to fly, well, there's airplanes. If you want to be able to hold your breath a long time, there's rebreathers and there's uh, air tanks. If you want to be resistant to fire, well, there's no mech suits. So I, I always refer to equipment as feats that you can buy uh, with money versus having to buy it through experience and, and various kinds of level rises or whatever the system is in your particular game system. Anyway, so we're talking this time about protection. The reason we're talking about protection is because no matter how well you negotiate, sooner or later, you're going to be in a situation where someone's going to take a pot shot at you. So you're going to be in a, a bad environment. You're going to be someplace where you're going to take some damage if you're not protected or if you can't produce some damage back. This time we're talking about protection, and that includes body armor, weapons, gas masks, things like that. So, John? Why don't you tell us about armor? In most cases, armor is there to reduce the damage you take. It, it won't stop it completely. People who have been shot wearing Kevlar armor still can have bruises, even broken bones from the shots, just depending on, how, on the velocity of the rounding shot on them. Most Kevlar vests are pistol-proof, not rifle-proof. To be rifle-proof, you need another level of protection. Kevlar with, with ceramic inserts, there's a new, I think it's called the Dragon Armor, I believe. There's, there's basically this new armor out there for, for that people can wear that will protect them against rifles. Rifles usually are higher velocity, and therefore they go through simple uh, Kevlar vests like they weren't there. So that's in, the thing to keep keep mind up. Now, of course, in D20, you get an increase in your armor class. It makes you harder to hit, harder to kill at that point. But at the cost of movement, agility and some skill use in some cases. It's more of a deflective nature. It, it keeps you from being hit by a, a bullet or projectile effectively. In the D20 modern system, in the Fringeworthy game, we grant a lot of free feats if you go through the IDET training. And one of them is environmental suit use. And the environmental suit is the equivalent of the light back suit that's in the D20 modern manual. And this is pretty good armor. The best benefit that you get from it, it says you gain the use of this equipment with no minuses. And the minuses that normally come with it is a minus to movement, dexterity, and, and so it's 
a very big benefit to have this. The, the downside, of course, is the fact is that you're walking around in a big environmental suit. It's kind of noticeable. It's not something you're going to want to do all the time. And when I created characters for some of the playtesting we did, I actually gave a whole bunch of characters the undercover vest, and they ended up not using them because they took minuses from wearing the undercover vest to their uh, their defenses and their dexterity and their movement that they didn't get with the uh, environmental suit. And they decided that it was better for them not to wear any armor at all versus wearing something that gave them minuses. So in the game, you're probably going to be wanting to wear that environmental suit whenever you're in a situation where combat's involved, unless, of course, you're not caring that much about the minuses that you get. If you're in a more a situation where you're defending a particular place, or if you have great dexterity uh, agility bonuses already and you don't mind the minuses. Uh, so that's, that's what the D20 system effect is. Uh, a lot of other systems... Uh, they don't put those kind of minuses, so you're perfectly free to add all kinds of different kind of armor, piecemeal armor uh, systems. And I know that there are some variant systems for D20 Modern, which allows you to put armor on piecemeal, which allows you to avoid a lot of the minuses. So you can have a flexible chest area, but then you can also put shoulder pads that are made out of hard metal uh, or a helmet that's made out of hard metal to give you extra, extra protection for your head. It's also those systems usually support, would have to support specific hit locations because otherwise why would you have your armor in different parts and different levels of your armor? You know, this doesn't just cover modern armor and, and such. It can It can refer to old armor Say you go to a fantasy genre world or medieval world or whatever, and you're walking around. Well, a lot of people there did wear armor, so it wouldn't be uncommon for the characters to wear like a suit of chainmail. So it would be common for the players to acquire those and wear them. It'd be kind of smart for them. They're still going to take minuses. Of course, it wouldn't be as bad as a plate vest. That is always an option as well. And then don't forget when you go into a futuristic setting. Your armor could be very protective and be very lightweight and mobile and not give you so many minuses because, you know, in the future they have improved materials. Maybe they're using, you know, um, a buckyball material or something like that, uh, a carbon nanotube type material. Even a force field. Or, or a force field. Now, a force field on the fringe, you know, going through the fringe path, of course, a force field. No. It doesn't have to be electronic. You know, they, or magnetic. It could be some other technology that we're not even thinking of, some kind of zero point type of deal or something. It could be psionically powered. You know, maybe it's it's um, uh, maybe that's the high tech there. But the point of the matter is, is that you know, force fields generally usually going to be electronic and magnetic, or and or magnetic. So walking through the French pads are going to go down. But while you're on the world, hey, you know, they work fine. Maybe we should do a short little survey here. So against like normal uh, hand attacks and, and clubs and, and, and human-powered devices, you know, your leather armor is going to be, usually be perfectly fine, uh, which doesn't usually provide too much of a minus to your dexterity. Uh, Kevlar armor is really good versus uh, projectile-type weapons as long as they're of an appropriate caliber, but they're not very good at all for stopping stopping things like arrows or stopping things like knives and, th- and, and things like that. Well, and don't forget, like, baseball bats go, you know, Kevlar doesn't do a whole lot of good against something like a baseball bat. 
Right, because it's it's a very flexible material, which is why you like it, you know. But for example, in one game, they were using the chainmail shark suits because it gave them protection against most uh, knives and hand attacks with clubs and things like that. Not tremendously good about that. But then they could also just jump right into the water and they didn't have to worry about running into sharks and other type of uh, aggressive uh, marine life. Because a lot of times you're going to be in other environments than just land. You could be in the water a bunch of times. And these shark suits, they were made out of, and since I did spare no expense, uh, they were made out of titanium. And so they were very light and uh, did a very good job. That's true for systems that actually handle that. Unfortunately, in D20, Kevlar works just as well against a baseball bat as it does against a bullet. Right. Because they don't differentiate between high-velocity and low-velocity impacts. Now, in games like in Savage Worlds, uh, vests do actually have two ratings. They have a rating for low-velocity impacts, and they have one for high-velocity impacts which gives you a little bit more reality and gives you a plus two against low velocity and a plus four against high velocity. It also reduces its armor piercing capabilities as well. The best way of handling this type of thing in D20, I think, is just simply be giving resistances. So, for example, a Nomex suit, which is very little protection against any kind of cutting or shooting or something like that. It gives you fire resistance. The environmental suit uh, does have that kind of protection. It does protect against heat and cold and gas and somewhat against hand-to-hand attacks and and missile weapons and even grenades. I mean, it's just a general purpose uh, spacesuit kind of thing. So something that's designed to handle micrometeorites and the coldness of space and things like that is going to be able to handle a lot of the the extremes that you might run into in combat. But it's not going to be like Heinlein power armor. You're not going to get that. If you did have Heinlein power armor, you don't want to take it on the platforms that you want to take it in the back of your truck. Well, it's, it's very heavy. One of the things you keep in mind is is how you're going to be moving around. It, your armor does give you minuses to to hit when you're you know to, to attack. It just gives you minuses to movement and things like that. Well, if you're in a vehicle, moving around in the vehicle, you probably don't care about that sort of thing. So you can really armor up big time. And talking about vehicles, that's something you may want to consider armoring your vehicles. Maybe more efficient for you in terms of protection than putting armor on your person, though I would say still keep wearing that vest even though you're in your vehicle. Armoring your vehicle will actually help you resist damage and leave your vehicle in a rain condition. The only downside to that is then you're making your vehicle heavier and you're lowering its gas mileage. So uh, you want to use a, a very strong like carbon fiber type material with I don't know, maybe titanium plates in it or something. I always kind of wondered about that because I've seen ads for armored vehicles and things like that, and they're usually really heavy. they got extra thick glass. they got reinforced bodies and things like that. I think that they're really armoring them against explosives, against missiles or grenades or things like that. So uh, I like more along the lines of what we saw in Terminator 2 where they started taking combat vests and just hanging them over the windows and along the walls, and those weren't terribly heavy. You add you know, a layer of ballistic cloth to the inside of your vehicle, and it's not going to add a tremendous amount of weight, yet it'll stop pretty much all weapon fire that might be coming through the windows. 
you could also say that it's it's highly likely that that they could have developed a ballistic foam that would go inside of the body of the car because really what you're doing is you're you're talking about displacing kinetic energy and a foam is like perfect for that. I think there have been some things where they've worked on ballistic foam and such, but IDET does have some advanced technology, so that's not far fetched. You know, you could say, well, IDET vehicles have a certain amount of armor if you wanted, you know, if you wanted to go this route. And, and say that their vehicles are really highly resistant to do a handgun rounds and stuff, or you could make it available for teams that could afford it. I would say that in game terms, your vehicle would have a defense rating of six or eight, which are armored vehicles. Well, what about in game terms, though? What is like the defense value of, say, you know, a, a Ford Pinto if you're, you know, if it goes through both the doors? Let's say you're sitting on the other side of you, you do the old movie trick where you open up the door and you get behind it and you're shooting around it. Would that car door, just in D20 terms, give you any protection? Defense, actually, defense is something else. It's hardness. A military vehicle has a hardness of 10 to 20. A Pinto got five. Okay. So a military vehicle would subtract like 20 points yeah. from the damage from a bullet. So it would pretty much stop uh, the, the damage from any small weapon fire. And that's anywhere you like in the vehicle, behind the door, behind the engine. Well, no, I would say if you're behind the engine block, you got 20. You got to get to the engine block. Okay. Even for a civilian vehicle, if you even 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 with an aluminum engine block, that's going to stop. That's unless you're using an engine killer or a 50 caliber uh, sniper round, you're pretty much safe behind that engine block. Now, if they're using you know 50 caliber above. 20 millimeter cannons, they're going to shoot your shoot your vehicle up like it's made out of Swiss cheese. This is where you start negotiating with your GM. You say, hey, hey, you know, that, that value that's in the book, that's just for the body of the vehicle. I'm actually behind the engine block being real careful to put it, keep it between me and the guy shooting at me. So I should get the equivalent of like a big metal rock in addition to the armor value of the vehicle. And the GM might say, okay, and then you're, you're sweet. You know? Right. Tell him to play, and you'll be the GM for a yeah. while and see how he likes it. Now, you, you did touch on one other thing uh, that, that I wanted to talk about with the the body armor before. You know, there's there's the whole fact that people don't want to wear it because it's bulky, it's um, and, and that's understandable. There's also It's hot, and then there's the looks of it as well. You know, you're walking around the city wearing body armor. It's going to take a very short period of time for you to be arrested on today's streets. Because body armors, I think it's, I think it's pretty much illegal everywhere for citizens to wear body armor out. No, uh, no, that's not true at all. And, and, really? and besides, well, I, I think in Maryland it is because. Okay. And and they're rationale like, and I always thought it was stupid. I'm like, well, who cares? You know, a guy wants to wear body armor, you know, protect himself from getting shot in a bank or something. And I think their rationale was is that what does he need body armor for? Is that protecting him from the cops? You know, why does he need protection from cops as well? I don't know. It, but in Maryland, I'm pretty sure that it's it's illegal because you, I can't buy it. I, you have to have a police license to buy it. Huh. Okay, because I know that in Pennsylvania, uh, it didn't used to be illegal, and it certainly wasn't illegal in uh, West Virginia. I don't know about Georgia, where I live now, because I haven't tried to buy any. Uh, no, actually, I'm sorry. I, it was the, for, for the first time I tried to buy it. It was in Georgia. There are places where you can do it. Some places you can't, and that's where you run. You can run afoul with the local laws when you're exploring. But speaking generally, uh, it's not that hard to put a basic, uh, the equivalent of the undercover vest, 
built into jackets and things like that, so you can hide the fact that you have them. Yeah, because I figure that for the most part, at very least, you have undercover vests, which means, yes, it's bulky, yes, it's kind of warm, but as long as you wear a jacket over it or something like that, people aren't going to notice you're wearing armor. Just remember that it only covers your torso. Someone aims at your head, someone aims at your legs or your arm, they're gonna, it's going to go right through. Sort of segues into the next bit about protection, which is the proficiencies, because if you're starting with a character who isn't combat-oriented, you don't have any of these armor proficiencies or even the uh, weapons proficiency. The only one you have by default is the simple weapons proficiency. Which still covers handguns. I think it also covers, like, shotguns. No, it doesn't. I'm sorry, I meant personal weapon proficiency. Most people have that. As a matter of fact, it, it comes with the idea training. Not, you're not always going to be attacked with a weapon like a gun or a bullet. Okay, Sometimes you're going to be attacked by gas, BZ gas, nerve gas, and other a lot of terrible things. To protect yourself against that, you really need a really good gas mask. That's always good to have in your equipment. I recommend everybody who's an explorer carry a decent gas mask with you. However, sometimes if you're in a covert type situation, you can't carry something like that. But there are some other alternatives that can provide you at least with a short period of protection. There's a thing called a mask in a can, and it's marketed as a means of temporary air, clean air if you're in a building that's on fire and it's got a lot of smoke. You literally had this can, it's about the size of a soda can, and you reach in and you pull out this mask. It's a simple plastic bag and you put it over your head, tighten it up, and it it's allows you to pull air through the can and it's, it filters out uh, smoke and stuff and, and it could also be used to filter out things like, uh, the, not the commercial one that they sell, but through IDET, it could also be good for nerve, not nerve gas, but um, tear gas, smoke, and, uh, and, and some of your minor irritants, pepper spray, uh, and, and gases that involve some kind of uh, floating uh, irritant of that kind using really hot pepper kind of stuff. This is something that it doesn't take a lot of space. It doesn't. It can be disguised as a Coke can, so it doesn't raise any eyebrows, and you can carry it along with you, and it can really help you out in, in an emergency situation. It's good for about 15 minutes at the most, five really effectively, and I would recommend it to everybody to carry that as well. You could have like the James Bond device or the Batman device where it's just two little canisters of, uh, of oxygen, which would only give you just a few minutes. But you stick, you know, you have like a, a scuba diver rebreather piece on there and, and, and two little oxygen containers and you could stick it in your mouth. And if you look at show four, if you look at the notes, there was one, it's gas mask fire extinguisher. One of the links there, I found this, this neat invention that this guy come up with. It, it's an oxygen container a fire extinguisher built into one. If you're trapped in a burning building, it's an emergency little container that you can use to breathe and you can put out uh, small sections of fire if you need to get like through a door or something. It's a neat little device. One of the devices players used was a molecular mask. And this is a mask which has pores in it that are small enough that only uh, something the size of an oxygen molecule can go through. So it kept out all kinds of dust and, and some of the larger chain molecules like tear gas and things like that and allowed them to literally strain oxygen out of the air. Uh, they were using it in a world where there was a very low amount of oxygen and so the nitrogen molecules were too big 
and therefore they were able to enhance the richness of the air they were breathing by sucking it through this molecular mask. But it could also be very useful against things like you know, gas attacks. That's not terribly high tech. That's something that could reasonably pre- be produced in the next 20 years, so you could find that on a near future world. And I think, uh, I forget what game it was we were playing, but we were playing this one game where they had these biological creatures, and, and this would be a good Tremelin device, as a matter of fact. It's actually a living creature that filters air for you. You know, you'd pull it out of this little, like, wet bag of juice that the thing lives in, and you stick it on your face, and, uh, and it would filter the air for you. <laughs> sort of your own personal wet willy, huh? Yeah, right. Actually, I remember a science fiction story that actually had living suits. Yeah, John Varley, uh, the the oh, oh, I can't pronounce it. The Okuchi yes. Hotline. Yeah, the or how, you, how you pronounce yeah. the damn thing? <laughs> they were an organism that literally would would flow around you, and it would live off your waste and heat, and it provided you with with oxygen and protected you against the rigors of space. So you literally could live in vacuum and and be just fine. Yep, like I said, it would get intimate with you in the process of doing it, though. <laughs> Yes, it was very intimate. <laughs> Invasive, even. <laughs> yeah. let, let, let's not forget that, you know, when it comes to, like you said before, but you need to reiterate this, when it comes to nerve gas, um, that stuff is skin contact, and, and there's a lot of other things that, that could be skin contact as, as well. I think I think mustard gas is skin contact. It is, but its graze effect is on soft tissues like eyes and mouth and, and lung tissue. So okay. you, you can endure the burning you know, of, of, of mustard gas on your skin for a short period of time, but it'll immediately blind you if it was ever to get in your eyes or your lungs or something like that. When I was in the military, I learned, I learned a lot of this stuff. Mustard gas is interesting in that it has a relatively high boiling point of other gases. Uh, in, the, in the trenches and yeaves and so forth, they would get hit with mustard gas, but they wouldn't know it because it was too cold out for it to vaporize. Only when they went into the barracks did it vaporize and started gassing everyone. So something to keep in mind, you may get hit with a gas like mustard gas, but if it's cold enough, say like below freezing, when you went in, if you went indoor, if you go someplace where it's warm, like the platforms, that gas will now start activating and start spreading out. If your DM is throwing nerve gas and mustard gas at you you need to get a new game master you need to be playing at the level that that would be appropriate okay should so be a gonna, surprise right <laughs> you, should, you should have some intel on that or something because i mean that's that's hardly yeah. what i would call fair there's a portal someplace in france 1914 19 you know 15 and hey you know what yeah, or actually in belgium i think in Belgium, it's like that. Yeah, okay, it's time to worry about things like gas attacks and stuff like that because it may happen. Dorian on your team that would, you know, would happen to be able to walk through the portal and go, wait a minute, this isn't right, you know, and would know what to look for and everything. Then I guess, you know, you're given a fair chance. But I, yeah. my point was it's just that, you know, if you're somewhere and you have no idea that they might have nerve gas and they decide to use nerve gas on you, um, that's just mean. That's why I had a problem with that one world that had the binary sun. You walk through and, you know, you're, you're walking around for a couple of minutes and you've got third degree burns and possibly uh, radiation poisoning as well. well that's, that's a little much. So uh, it's also one reason why I keep uh, the Rabina uh, portal locked down until they get a high enough level that they've got the right equipment. And certainly Hatsumi Base has full trauma 
uh, setup to handle people with uh, really bad oh, yeah. injuries. I mean, basically, whoever goes to goes to the binary sun portal first was going is going to get a, a really intense sunburn, at the very least, probably third degree sunburns. Well, the, the when I went through that, when the game master I had at the time, he was a little more fair. It sucked, but he <laughs> a little more fair. He made it extremely hot as well, so I knew I was in trouble the second I went through that thing. So, yeah, I did get burns and stuff, but I knew to get the hell out of there right away because it was blistering hot. I didn't walk around for a few minutes and go, oh, uh uh-oh, you know, before it was too late. He gave me the heads up right away. I drove through. I'm looking around, and all of a sudden I realized it was exceptionally hot. But when I got out, I was, you know, it was all right. Because when you walk through the portal, a lot of your protections like meters and, and sensors and things like that, they're not working for the next 10 minutes. And that's more than enough time to get a near lethal oh, yeah. dose of ultraviolet. That, that, yes. So. All right. Yeah. Well, speaking of near death, let's talk about things that deal death. Sometimes you just have to make, let God sort them out. you got to use the real lethal weapons. So what's your favorite, John? Oh, well, this thing I always get in arguments with folks because – if I'm going to go for firepower, I, I will make sure that I have weapons that are reliable. When it comes down to rifles, assault rifles, there's nothing more reliable than the AK-47, the most popular and common assault rifle in the world. You can drop it in a puddle, run a bore brush through it, or hey, you, now you can do that, and it'll still fire. Every other weapon out there, if you drop it in a puddle, a mud puddle, you would have to take it apart and clean it. I was in the military, and I used to have to take the Jam and Jenny the other most popular assault rifle, the M16A1 and A12, and spend half an hour cleaning the full thing if it got dirty, because it would jam immediately if you tried firing it. For a long arm, I'd use an AK-47. When it comes down to personal weapons, uh, handguns, I like the Beretta 9mm. You get a lot of rounds. Revolvers are nice. A semi-automatic is far more reliable and lets you put more fire down range on wherever you're shooting at. It used to be that you didn't want a, a semi-auto because of its tendency to jam versus a revolver. And they both also usually had pretty much the same number of rounds in them. Now, uh, an automatic is very reliable, and it's designed to keep most contaminants out. So it actually, in many ways, is better than the revolver. The big advantage of the revolver is you can actually mix your ammo if you want to have different kinds of ammo types in the same gun. And you can clearly see what you got. You can move the chamber around to get the right bullet in place for the next shot, if you remember where they are. Otto, what, what do you think about uh, personal weapons? <clears throat> I'm a shotgun fan. Uh, a lot of times when you get into combat, it's it's close range. Uh, I think that the FBI stated that at close range, uh, or most, most fights happen, most combats happen within 20 or 30 feet. And while a handgun is fantastic for that area, and I do like handguns, a shotgun would be my major weapon for just general French traveling. And we're not talking about like an assault mission. We're talking about traveling around. I like the shotgun. It's handy. You can buy all kinds of rounds for different kinds of effects. Now, granted, when you need a special effect, you're going to have to load the special round in, but it can be extremely handy. You know, you've got dragon rounds that fire flames. And, you know, if you get to futuristic worlds, you can find uh, flechette rounds, uh, discarding saber rounds, and all kinds of crazy stuff for shotguns, explosive rounds. That's my favorite long arm to carry around for Fringeworthy just because they generally tend to be fairly reliable. They're very extremely versatile, which is one of the things that in, in Fringeworthy you need to be. And then I would go with – for handgun, this is just a fetish of mine. I like the 
1911. I just I don't know why, but I really like that handgun. It's it's very simplistic. It, it's sturdy. It works, works, works. It can't carry as many rounds as many other you know, the modern automatics. It's a, it's a good solid gun. You can bash somebody in the head with it, and the thing will still work. But that's my favorite handgun. And then I would always carry a you know, small backup revolver, like a, like a 22, just as a, a throwaway gun, just a little like something you jam in your belt just for those extreme emergencies and it's they're easily overlooked yeah that's that's my uh my firearms of choice it is a nice little weapon I mean, if i can't get a hold of one of those i hate to say this a luger of the same vintage is also quite reliable yeah well and that's another thing to, to mention about the 1911 about its reliability they still sell them it was manufactured in 1911. I mean, that's why it's called the 1911. And I know the A is an upgrade, but the point of the matter is the thing is still in circulation, and people still love that gun. So they're doing something right. For me, I don't know, really know that much about weapons, so I kind of look at it more in the terms of the game system itself. I want it either to be very small and concealable, or I want it to be very accurate. I know I'm not going to do a whole lot of, of damage with one, so I want to make sure that I can make called shots or things like that. So I try to pick handguns like that. Once they have also enough ammo, then I don't have to worry about running out immediately. But if I'm going to really go for a small handgun, and I, I want to use it just a lot, but I would want a machine pistol that fires 22 caliber rounds. One of those ones that hardly vibrates. You put a laser sight on it, you can cut oh. through a telephone pole with it. That's the kind of handgun I would like to have. Yeah, For a couple of reasons. One reason is because it really can dish out a lot of damage. They're very accurate. They're relatively small. But to me, the most important thing is they use 22 caliber rounds. 22 caliber rounds are not very well controlled. Most people don't think of them as a real bullet. They're considered in light handguns or light rifles that people use for for target shooting and stuff like that. They don't see it as an assault rifle or an assault weapon. But when you fire these things out at a thousand rounds a minute, coming out of one of these like machine pistols, you've got some serious damage. Might not be noticed by somebody when you go out and buy five or six boxes of of shots. Say, so, yeah, I'm going to be going out to the range and shooting all afternoon. Versus going out and buying, let's say, 145 caliber magnum rounds. And they're like, okay, who are you going to kill? Yeah, that does kind of stand out. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I, but I love shotguns, too. For the same reason you like auto, because of the variety of, of, of ammo types you can put into them. I personally think the, the dragon round is probably the one most wonderfully scary round anybody's ever devised. You know? Yeah, I don't know how effective they are, but when you're talking about a role-playing game, they're probably more useful than they are in real life. Yeah, that's usually true in role-playing games. Your guns rarely screw up. Most people don't really know how to maintain weapons very well in role-playing games, but they still use them effectively. Other than that, if I'm going to step up beyond that, I want a good assault rifle that has a built-in laser sight and built-in a grenade launcher. One that can fire a variety of different things like flares and, and of course, high explosive and armor-piercing type rounds. In the third edition of Fringeworthy, they had a particular kind of round, which was an electrochemical round. And the idea was is that it actually, the gun like put extra heat into the chamber so that when the round exploded, it actually produced more pressure because of the extra heat that was there. And therefore, the round coming out could be smaller and yet have more penetration power. 
Is that actually a real thing? Is I haven't noticed that no. in any of the books for uh, D20 Modern. Is it actually available? No, no. Okay. Well, it I'll always seemed like what, a though, cool device. If you wanted it to work, you, you could get that to work. Your, first off, your weapon would have to be very strong material, not, not what they're building them out of today. You'd, this thing would have to be specially built. You would also might want to think about a ceramic barrel because of the, the heat you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and you also want to go with what's called discarding Sabo. And what that would be is your bullet would actually be bigger than uh, – like you would go with, a, say, maybe a 5-millimeter round, which would be kind of tiny, and it would be a long, like a needle-like weapon or needle-like round. And then what it would have is it would have a jacket on it for extra weight because when you hit something – FMA, F equals MA, which is you know mass times acceleration. So yeah, that you can get a bullet going fast, but you want to have some mass behind it so it has some punch. So what you do is you have this discarding sable on the outside of it, so the bullet leaves the weapon, it travels some distance, and then that piece breaks off. And when the bullet, or, or it breaks off when it hits somebody, like it's loosely fit on there. It's just it's just on there to give the bullet momentum. So then when it hits somebody, that extra piece just flies off, and all your energy is released into the person. If you know you're going to be dealing with unarmored individuals, and you're in a situation where you're not quite sure who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, unless they shoot at you, you also may want to consider going the in- exact opposite direction and using uh, safety rounds. These are frangible bullets that basically shatter on impact on anything really hard. So if you're wearing a leather vest, a hard leather vest, it actually would stop the bullet. But it also means the bullet doesn't go through the person and then go through the person behind them or go through a wall. Regular sheetrock will stop the bullets from going through the wall. Well, what happens if they hit if they hit just soft flesh? It, it'll penetrate. It'll penetrate like an inch or so. And then the bullet comes apart? Oh, it actually, it comes apart when it hits. <laughs> I'm thinking that's pretty nasty because you're talking about releasing all of the energy from that round into a one-inch deep wound, which would literally look like an explosion coming out of the front of the guy because normally when a bullet hits somebody, if it has enough energy, it goes through them, and a lot of the energy goes out through the back. So a lot of the energy is, escapes. But you're talking about utilizing all of the energy from that round. So, I mean, it would hit him, and it would literally, like if you hit him in the shoulder, you'd probably blow his arm off. Or at least shatter the bone inside. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be nasty. It would look really nasty, and it would be – I mean, first aid would be a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Basically, its main purpose is to prevent prevent innocents from being hurt right. or through and throughs or shots through walls. And it's also a good round to use on a spaceship. Oh, but, yeah. Of course. I read a story one time where they used shotguns with gold BBs in, in the rounds because the gold being soft, when it hit flesh, it was – tremendously damaging but it wouldn't bust through sensitive equipment like you know control panels and things like that and blow holes through spaceship walls or airplane walls and things like that except that it uh, would it's unfortunately gold and lead are pretty much the same and i hate to say it lead goes through so would gold um and trouble if you're talking like modern day spaceships the hull you're talking about is about the thickness of a, a soda can you know so yeah you don't really want to use anything that causes major damage you know like a frangible round. <laughs> I don't think the space shuttle is that thin. No, not space shuttle, but the ISS is. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's not designed to be an atmosphere. Yeah. It can be really, really thin like that. Yeah. Anything that's good, the atmosphere is going to be nice and thick, but anything that doesn't actually have to leave the vacuum of space, you can have nice thin hulls. All right. Now, when we were talking before, you said, you know, what would I want to take, uh, you know, what kind of weapons do I want to walk around with? If Now, if I... I 
I said that was like if I didn't go into combat. Now, if I was going into combat, my combat weapon, like I knew what we're going on a mission, like a rescue mission or an assault mission. Right. Um, I like the FNP90. That system is fantastic. It uh, it's a bullpup design, which means that the barrel's long, so it channels a lot of the energy, but a lot of the barrel actually goes back and underneath your arm. It's further back than you would normally have in a weapon. So you're getting the barrel length to give the bullet enough energy to do some damage, but you're not sticking your weapon way out there. You saw them on a certain TV show that reminds you of Fringeworthy. They use that weapon a lot. It's a fantastic system. They're really reliable. They're, they're really uh, an awesome gun. And they look cool, too. Yeah, they, 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 they look cool. They look like a space gun. They hold a crap load of ammo, too. Yeah. You would like it, Bruce, because it's not a real heavy round, and a thing can spray like crazy. Great. You're in sport, and you've got some body armor, and you've got your weapons, and you got your ammo. How much burden are you carrying around with you with all this stuff? Depends on what you're packing for. If you're packing for combat, your ammo is really heavy. It's a lot. It's going to take up a lot of your cargo. Modern soldiers carry a crap load of ammo on them, which is the reason why M16s don't have a full auto feature anymore. They just they have, I think, believe just the six-round or three-round burst. Mm-hmm. Um, John? Oh, yeah. What is that? The A2, the M16A2, the new AK-107, and the AKM. Uh, all are basically three bursts of single or single shot. Uh, right, because because you had these knuckleheads, they get spooked and they jam on the trigger and they'd empty their clip, and the soldiers couldn't carry enough ammo to actually really fight because they're constantly running out of ammo because the stuff is heavy, you know, carrying around enough ammo to be spraying down, you know, hosing down the battlefield. So you, you're if you're packing for combat, a good chunk of your weight is ammo. I know it's gonna go into combat. You've seen it in a certain movie about uh, alien uh, alien hunters going to Earth. The uh, general the General Electric XM two fourteen minigun. Oh God! Min- man portable. It is entirely electronic though. You still gotta wait for ten minutes for the thing to become become usable, and you need to carry fuel cells because the batteries are gonna be shot on it if you just get regular batteries. But yeah, it's man portable. Weighs about hundred pounds, and it will you know DC cutter. Uh, most of your foes down if you if you if you be going to nasty combat. <laughs> so if you know you're going to be stepping into a hell, <laughs> that's the weapon to have. That's the weapon to have. <laughs> and it would be really helpful to you uh, before you do that if you could see if you could also find some world that had some kind of a assistive skeletal device, some kind, not not a full power armor thing, but something that would like give you a powered exoskeleton mm-hmm. so you could carry some of this equipment around. Like some of the mounts that they had, uh, it, that wasn't an exoskeleton, but some of the mounts that they had. Aliens movies? The Aliens movies where they were had this like big gun and they were like moving it around on some kind of a, a liquid floating mount. That looked really good. What they did was in the movie, they took the Steadicam mount and adapted it for those weapons. <laughs> So that would be an effective tool to use with uh, some of the heavier weapons. Yep. It wasn't just for looks, right? No, it, no. It actually, it's actually it was a legitimate uh, device, right? The XM two fourteen uses something like that too. Uh, it's also known as a GE six pack, as well. Carries a, the uh, the minigun weighs about. Actually, I'm looking at the stats for it right now. It's eighty five pounds and it has a thousand rounds, which means you get about um, ten seconds shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, well, yeah, that's that's great. 
If you can find a, a good exoskeleton, something that can uh, you, know, you can carry enough power to make it work, and you don't end up lugging around another hundred pounds of of expended uh, equipment, uh, that would be great to have. Not only can it make you able to carry a lot of this heavy armament and armor, but it also means you can usually travel a lot faster than you would normally without having the limitations of a vehicle such as a, a Jeep or a Humvee or even the uh, Moscovy personnel carrier. If you do have one of those, yeah, get that as close as you can to the area of combat because, well, it may, you'll live longer that way. Then you can get out and use your uh, man purple weapons to, to finish off the job. All right. Okay, so how about explosives? Uh, what explosives actually work on the fringe path? Grenades, because grenades are entirely chemical. You pull the pin, they ignite a fuse. When you let the spoon go, you remember that, folks. If you pull a pin or grenade, you're you're fine as long as you don't let go of the spoon. You let go of the spoon, you usually got about three seconds before it goes off. It lights a fuse when that goes off. It lights a chemical fuse. That's correct. Having actually played with practice grenades and thrown a real grenade at least once in my life, yeah. And you and don't stand up and look when you throw it. Throw it and hit the ground. Hand grenades have a blast radius longer than you can throw them. You want to throw and run when you throw a, a Willie Peak grenade, because Willie Peak grenades have an even bigger blast radius than, than what you can throw them. <sighs> and they will well, set you on fire. Yes. <laughs> well, even though they're called explosives, most grenades are actually, the most dangerous part of them is the shrapnel, right? That's correct. They're shrapnel weapons. In fact, baseball grenades are designed to fragment into tiny pellets for maximum damage. The old pineapple grenades would fragment, but they wouldn't normally fragment properly on, on the bevel cuts. It's a plastic outside body, and the inside, all these little pellets are just laminated into, into, the, into the surface of the grenade, and inside is a, is a charge big enough to fire them off uh, 20 or so feet, basically the effective blast radius. So it's kind of an omnidirectional shotgun blast. That's correct. But, of course, if somebody jumps on one, it will protect people. I mean, if you want to sacrifice yourself, you can. Jump on a grenade, and your buddies will still be alive, because they may take, like, minor damage to their feet. But, yeah, you will prevent the grenade from being omnidirectional at that point, if you jump on one. But, for example, law missiles, they don't work on the fringe paths? They basically are, are fired through a piezoelectric fuse. Okay. In fact, most missiles are fired either through a battery or through a piezoelectric ignition system, which means they don't work on the fringe paths. What about the old thing in the breach grenade launchers? The you know, bazookas? It's like a, no, no, no. I'm thinking like the, it's like a shotgun. Rifle guns. It's like a, the old, the German, yeah, from World War II, they had, they had rifle grenades. The, oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about, it looks like a shotgun. Like you break up in a oh. shotgun, you stick a grenade in it, you close it up and you fire it. I mean, that would work, right? Because I think that's um that's all just like a firing pen and chemical, isn't yeah, it? percussion cup. Yeah, you have a percussion cap in the back behind a, a, a lifting charge that fires it off. Uh, in fact, that actually gets you the range you need for a lot of those grenades. Uh, so, you know, especially if you're firing off Willie Pete, uh, which is white phosphorus, if you know what Willie Pete means. It burns so hot, it actually it can draw oxygen out of water. It burns underwater. Well, I read somewhere that with the modern technology, the way they're building things, they're actually thinking about phasing out the 40-millimeter grenade because the purpose of the 20-millimeter grenade uh, is anti-personnel, and they're finding that they can get the job done with a 20 millimeter. That's right. Um, with, with, with the modern, I mean, with, with totally modern designs. Modern explosives and so forth, yeah. So I, I'm thinking that's actually kind of nice because I think 
20 millimeter, that's like a big shotgun round. I mean, you could you could carry a pump-action 20 millimeter launcher, I would think. Now, this is not to be confused with a 20 millimeter cannon, right? No, 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 no. 20 millimeter cannons are firing big, heavy rounds that put holes through most car armor. And yeah. buildings. And buildings and people and... It's not even really considered an anti-personnel weapon. That's a waste. Firing a 20 millimeter round through a person is, is ridiculous. I mean, yeah, they're meant to kill people, but they're meant to actually really kill jeeps and like light armor tanks and stuff, I, I think. Yep, right. They were designed actually as anti-aircraft weapons, and people found out, hey, they also work on, on lightly armored vehicles as well. Right. <laughs> like armored personnel carriers. Yes. In my Fringeworthy campaign, the, the Fringe Pirates use a 20-millimeter uh, cannon on all their roving-type vehicles. So they take out your vehicle, and then they mop up with the 50 cows that are also attached to the vehicle. Good lord. The Victorians would be using Nordenfelts. These are from two-pounder up to, up to four-pounder cannons, but on a rotating barrel system that fires the shells. So they can pump it out, too. One shell around, they can fire off before they need to reload. The Victorians, they're what, 18... 1890s? 1890s. So they have Gatlings. They actually have some of the early, shot, early machine guns. And you know what kind of grenades they have? Sticks of dynamite. Ah, you know, you'd be surprised. They probably have cast iron grenades. Oh, they, they might, but but I'm just saying, we're, we're forgetting the simple basics. You know, let, let's say you're in a Wild West town and you need an explosive. You get yourself a stick of dynamite. Dynamite will, will mess you up. I mean, that's no joke. Oh, yeah. Hey, you want to get the basic, get yourself one of those, you know, giant water balloon throwers and put some nitroglycerin in it. Oh, <laughs> you are brave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, if you're playing D20... And you want to use Victorians, I do recommend picking up the D20 Past book, because that actually will give you a lot of the stuff that you would see the Victorians you're using. They do have grenades back then, because I think the term grenade is like a, a, a grenadier or something like that, which is... Grenadiers were, were grenade throwers. But that word comes from uh, pomegranates, uh, another, a, I think a German, the German word for pomegranate, I believe, because the I grenades... I thought it was French. <laughs> I don't know. You're right. No, no. I think you're right, Bruce. I think it's French. I think I think you're right. But it has something to do with um, the the similarity to a pomegranate, and that goes way back. So grenades actually do go back a long time. And I just remember the name of the machine gun they would be using. They'd be using Maxim guns. They're one of the earliest water-cooled uh, machine guns that are out there. So you know, and they're they're pretty impressive. I'm looking in the the stats. They do two d ten damage, and they have a, a rate of fire of uh, autom- a fully automatic. So yeah, they, they put a world of hurt on you. <laughs> All right. So let's say you were trying to defend a platform from incursion by pirates or some other group. How would you go about it? What would what would be your plan? Well, which platform are you going to defend? Let's let's assume you were defending, let's say, a prime, because that way you only have one egress uh, uh, from it. The way I did it during my campaign was there's an actual fort built out uh, on there. Basically, went and got concrete forms, brought them through on trucks, set them up, and built a fort that faced the entrance portal. And they basically had heavy weapons re- trained at a spot before. Well, why wouldn't you fire right at the portal, John? The portal fires back if someone's transiting. It doesn't fire at them if they've already come all the way through? That's correct. So if someone's completely transited and you shoot at him, he's fair game. But if he's still transiting, any part of him still transiting, the portal will, will try to protect him by firing back at the person or thing that's shooting at him. 
you would build a fort, is what you're saying on the platform. Yeah, build a fort. Okay, all right. You would try to put some kind of device up there to clothesline somebody coming through the portal. Because you can clothesline someone friendly coming through. That's the problem. Okay, so you're you're assuming that you want someone to have free reign to come through and declare themselves, and then you just basically pound on them. Yeah. I'm looking at a situation where in an emergency where there's a team coming through with a wounded, you have a clothesline up or some sort of trap, they're going to get caught in a trap. And that takes time away from taking care of the injured. Now, in the in the previous version, there was no gravity about 90 feet up off the platform. So I always thought that you could take all kinds of explosive-type devices and just kind of hang them up there in the air. And then somebody could just literally yank them down. Uh, you could, like create almost kind of a, a mind trap where they, they come across and they actually pull a, a, an explosive down and it would literally drop down out of the sky and hit them. With our column of uh, uh, setup now where gravity goes up just like it would normally, you have a, literally a column of gravity. Is it possible to have some kind of a uh, aerial defense that's uh, waiting up there to rain down death upon people who come in? Yeah, but now you have to build a structure to do that. I mean, you, yeah, you, yes, you can try using balloons and tethering them, but balloons eventually leak gas and they fall down. Yeah, you would have to build some sort of structure, but you can then build it right over top of the ring itself. So it will be like 60 feet up in the air, right above the ring, so you actually could direct anything you, you drop away from the ring and onto where it comes out. Because I was always thinking that if you want to use something other than just straight explosives, I mean, if you weren't actually on the platform, then you could pretty much just light up the entire platform, not worrying about the platform being damaged if you were up in the air and they were down on the ground. Uh, Most pirates, uh, I've yet to see anybody have a pirate airborne. Uh, I've I've toyed with the idea myself, but so far I've been keeping them on uh, wheeled vehicles and things like that. Yeah, and if their vehicles are improvised, they probably have lots of armor on on the sides, but like naval ships before air combat, there was almost no armor above. I mean, that's why they developed uh, cannons that would do a high arc, so you would land straight down on a ship instead of hitting the the, uh, armor plating on on the sides of the ship. So you don't think of the idea of having some kind of a aerial cadre that are up in the air and, and providing support rather than being mount, down on the ground is a good idea. Maybe I'm not being clear. Um, I'm actually seeing this more of a kind of a surreptitious, uh, they're watching, they're providing surveillance, but at the same time, they can also act as a strike team. I just thought the fact that these people could literally be up hundreds of feet mm and be able to travel quickly down to the ground and be mobile would be a real advantage. You know, being a couple hundred feet up in the air, they could throw grenades and they would fall straight down on the platform, especially if they had delay-type grenades that could be, wouldn't go off in just three seconds. Oh, impact grenades, if they make them. Right, impact grenades and, and things like that, Fire, and guns that, you know, that, that were more of a sniper type. Because against the darkness of the fringe paths, they would be pretty darn invisible up there. And I would think that you would be very hard-placed to even realize they were there until they f- suddenly started you know, either attacking you or uh, you go by and you never knew they were there, and then they would bring up a defense against your rear. If they're armored, they have some protection against that kind of attack because basically you're spraying a lot of projectiles. The lead are even depleted. Well, it actually just 
they would be lead because depleted uranium is still uranium, so it would be lead. So they would right. still get some protection from the arm from their armor at that point. But you might use like something like flechette or something like that that would tear through the armor. But as we said, most uh, manipulable missiles are fired through piezoelectrics. You can still adapt one to fire off good old with a good old fashioned fuse or even a good old fashioned uh, pull blasting cap and fire them off. <laughs> I didn't want to get into the explosive aspect of it because I just can't imagine personally being on a pathway and using any kind of explosive because if anything goes awry and I get blown off that platform, I'm done. Well, that, that's where I was thinking that you know these guys that are airborne, they would have, you know, you've, you've seen these guys that are skydivers and they got like the wings. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, the air is constantly flowing upward because of that downward draft out and up. So therefore, you're going to have a breeze that you could catch. With you know those kinds of like wings, and therefore you could, to a certain extent, you could control your movement in that zero g area with the wind that's flowing. Well, Bruce, you know, you know what you could do is you could have a cabling system where you could hook it, you know, like with a vice type thing, all around the platform, and these cables would go up, and you have a giant sheet like the size, you know, of the platform that would catch all that air and would hold up, you know, a manned station. And you could just have guys up there with automatic weapons that would just tear the crap out of anybody who comes through there if they need to. You gotta get them up there. You gotta hope that nothing breaks. Well, yeah, there's always that. I mean, you know. Cable- well, I was also I was also thinking of it as more of a surreptitious kind of thing where they're they're wearing black against the black of the of, of the star field, and they're a couple hundred feet up, and they're effectively invisible. And as long as their weapons don't produce a, uh, an enormous uh, flash. Like if they were like tossing um, impact grenades or things like that, you know, using, you know, just a, a, a more of a even a mechanical system, uh, you would have no idea where they were coming from except to say, oh, somewhere up there in that area is somebody firing a really bad explosive at us. Now, what are we going to do? You can't use infrared unless you've got somebody who has, can see an infrared because those those things are electronic. Your best bet is probably the slarg. Basically, you clamp onto the edge of the platform, basically a foxhole. So you actually you're low now. You're very low. You're, you're at the level. You're almost the level of the surface. And it, this is my, probably maybe for anti-vehicle. You're at a level where you basically one thing you can hit really well is their uh, tires on their vehicles and take them out. And then at that point, they can't move. Now other weapons can be brought to bear to make them surrender. Of course, once you get onto the world, you can use whatever you want, and then there's, and and you can have all kinds of fun with uh, modern weaponry versus cavemen or uh, centurions or uh, even your uh, musketeers. That's a nice segue into what do you carry around as a non-firearm weapon, like a melee weapon? What do you carry around, John? Your character? Would you would you equip yourself with? Which I think is its general purpose. I can use it as a weapon. I can also, I can also use it as for clearing brush or chopping wood. So a machete would be one. Knife fighting, I wouldn't. I'd say knives. Getting a knife is, is a good way to get yourself hurt. That would be my close quarter weapon. A knife is just too small, and and if you go get someone who really knows how to use a knife, uh, you'll be cut up. Me, I would like a taser firing out the end of something that would be the equivalent of a billy club or. A- perhaps a quarter staff because I know I'm no good with swords, but I could hit something with a stick pretty good. And if I could zap it, then it will drop it. And then I just whack it on the head and it goes oh, to sleep. In that case, I would use a shock baton then. Yeah. But, but a shock baton does not have any range to no. it. 
Well, you could, I mean, you could, you could say that you know you want something like a billy club with a taser built into the end of it. That that wouldn't be too unreasonable. And then you could use it on the French path uh, as a billy club. Yes. And then when you get somewhere where you can recharge it, then you've got your taser device as well. Yeah, you you and I think alike, Otto. <laughs> yeah, I like weapons that are useful on the fringe path as well as off. So is machete. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and John, I have to agree with you. I, I'm a fan of the machete. The machete is it's a handy, useful weapon. It's, also um, a, tool. it's a tool and a weapon. But but I am going to go with a backup knife. Just because it's a very close quarters weapon, you can conceal them easily. You know, if I'm playing a character who's carrying around a knife, he's going to be trained in how to use a knife. You know, you can get a knife anywhere. You can get a knife in someone's kitchen. So well, you can have a multi-tool that has a knife in it, plus oh, sure. other useful things. Right, but but John, I agree. Machete is is a is a really the soldier's friend. I think in a lot of ways, uh, the the e tool is pretty nice yep. too. And also, we're talking about knives. I actually have my dad's old combat knife. It's a wicked thing <laughs> from World War II. It is a wicked thing. It's a, it, it's a long blade, and it would put a world of hurt on it if it was used. Now, a ceramic knife will go through a metal detector and can be used in a, on a more covert type situation. That's true. Ceramic blades, but one of the problems with ceramics is that they are ceramics, and therefore they'll be hard, 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 push and shatter when you least suspect it. Now, if I can have my druthers, if I could have anything, you know, like if I could say, you know, access to a high-tech world or whatever, I like, I'm a big fan of the uh, the mono blades, where they use a crystalline blade that's got a, it's a one-molecule-thick blade, um, and it they literally slice through body armor and take limbs off easily. Yeah, though uh, I was reading, I actually read someone right about the uh, Sinclair molecular wire from uh, Larry Niven. And so the problem with the thing is that you go wing and you realize you just have a piece of wire. So it cuts into the skin and stops because you've now used up all your force on it. <laughs> oh, no, no. No, no. This is this is a blade. It's it's, it's a blade blade. It's like a, you know, it's, it's got weight to okay. it. Yeah, it's, it's a sword. Oh. But it has, um, or, or a knife or whatever, a short sword. It's just that the, the, the blade edge itself is one molecule thick. Well, yeah, we actually have that. It's called obsidian blades. Well, I know that, I know that, but this is this is a crystal blade because an obsidian blade shatters. They shatter, and the crystal blade actually does have a chance of shattering as well. But you know, we're talking high tech future stuff, so I mean, it's not quite you know, it's, and it is a role playing game. So. I always like the vibra blade, where you've got a, a blade that's relatively safe, but then you turn on the little thing and it starts vibrating at a thousand times per second and and all of a sudden your blade just slices through anything that it touches bruce you have one already yeah. it's called a carving electric carving knife <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, this but, this thing this thing oscillates you know it's super high frequency. i know what you're talking yeah, about right and they like say and you don't have to worry about cutting your own hand off with it because you, know, you, you you as long as you push the button it, it does this and then as soon as you let go like if it falls out of your hand that it just turns into something that's got a, a, a relative sharpness to it you could you could still stab somebody with it but it's not going to do that you know it's not going to cut through the bulkhead below you actually one thing when my players came up with was a uh, flash gun for a camera turns out if it's dark outside and you fire off a flash gun in someone's face they get stunned for a couple of seconds, giving you time to, to do something else to them while they're trying to f- clear their eyes of being flashed at. I'll tell you what, if you want to have some fun, though, uh, it's a chainsword. 
you know, so basically you take a chainsaw, but instead of making it like, you know, big and bulky and everything, you make it like a sword. So you fire that baby up and you wield it like a sword. Now, of course, the your blade, your chain blade would have to be something a little more durable than sort of a chainsaw. Because if you took your chainsaw and actually whacked something with it, you'd probably break the blade. But, you know, you make it combat ready. It would have to probably travel faster than what's traveling on a regular chainsaw. And it would have to be sharper, of course, but just imagine that the pure adulterated fun and, and trauma and fear you inject into somebody when you, you know, you hit one of their buddies with this this chainsaw sword thing. It just tears out of the other guy. I can just see you giggling as you do this. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you want to get one, you go to the Warhammer 40K universe. Oh, yeah, that's right. They have this there, yeah. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It would it would have to be a combat version. You know, it would not be a chainsaw. It would be literally, you'd have to retool the whole thing. My fun one for for at least non-lethal close combat would be a pair of of teaser gloves. Uh, you go smack, wah, smack, wah, smack, wah. <laughs> You're beating the crap out of the guy, and he's peeing himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the ultimate joy buzzer. All right, so uh, guys, what is uh, you know we got to be wrapping this up soon? But what is your favorite uh, Meller killing weapon? Like if you're gonna go on a Meller hunt, or you know there's Mellers in the area, what do you what are you carrying on you? Flamethrower. <laughs> Man, purple minigun. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I um, mean, these guys regenerate. They they regenerate. <laughs> right. They have damage reduction and they regenerate. They're close quarters attackers if i was to be serious about it what i would really say is i'd want like jet boots to get me away from them long enough to have a chance of actually taking a shot at them when i was running the game they, they actually came across a war world and they found a strange weapon when it was fully engaged the barrels of the weapon were only four inches above the ground and trying to figure out why are the barrels four inches above the ground then they ran into the least miller if I were to hunt Mellers, I'd have to have some personalized weapons. Like, I'd want to use, like you were talking earlier, Bruce, about a twenty two, uh, like a high, you know, a high velocity, like not a high velocity, but a high volume uh, twenty two. Uh, it it is a high rounds. velocity as well. They, they well, actually, you know, no, no, yeah. they actually fire at a much higher velocity than a normal twenty two does. Oh, no, no. But see, I would use regular twenty two if I'm going against the little guys. Because um, I'm, I'm just, I don't have to use as much power powder. I can use a smaller 22 round, and I would make them. I'd want to have them hollow point and soft, very soft lead. You know, like, like uh, lead hollow point, so that when it hits one of those little buggers, it, it tears them up. But yeah. you don't want to have too much round because then you're wasting. You know, you're carrying a lot more metal and and uh, a powder than you need to to kill one of those little guys. And then you're also going to want to carry something that's got a lot of uh, a lot of punch. And, and again, you want hollow point because these guys are soft. Right. Uh, or maybe even those um, – oh, I can't remember. I think they're called uh, – what are they called? Uh, talon rounds. That's what they're called. They're called talon rounds. It's it's like a hollow point except it splits into five parts and it – or four four or five parts. And they're they're kind of hard when it, when it splits open. So it like really, really tears things up. Um, and I'd want like a – Maybe a 50 caliber handgun round. So, you know, when you run into that master, um, that's what you pump into him. I, I guess I'm from the stainless steel rat, the 70 caliber, fully recoilless auto pistol. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm thinking either that or, or, or I want the shotgun from Phantasm 2 with the four barrel. 
Actually, uh, action yeah. street sweeper yeah. would be one I'd use. That's actually that's a real sh- as a combat assault shotgun. It's fully automatic. Fire as twenty rounds. You can fire all twenty rounds in about two rounds. <laughs> but but Blake, you're right. I mean the the whole thing with a meller is the fact that they regenerate. Uh, they do have damage reduction, but at the same time, they don't generally wear armor. Uh, so no. therefore. If you use a weapon that has high penetration, you're just taking out the rest of the team that's probably on the other side of it. Right. So you, you want to use something that it has a lot of dishes out a lot of damage, like a shotgun that won't penetrate very far, but just does tremendous amounts of damage. And, and which is also why flamethrowers are nice because you know they, for the same reason, they're a surface weapon. They cover a large area. Napalm sticks. Yes. Yeah, napalm's you know, good. Napalm's real yeah, good. All that stuff. Um, the best weapon against Mellor is distance. <laughs> the best weapon against Mellor is intelligence and not going there. If it was that easy, then they wouldn't be a problem. If I'm going to be facetious, I would say I'd like matched uh, pearl-handled pangorn, <laughs> which are the little weasel-like guys that spit paralyzing uh, glob of spit at the Mellor and freezes them in their tracks which were introduced in the last edition. <laughs> but uh, those guys are, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't like that very much. you know. And if, if I'm going to be funny, A-10, Warthog. I, I want a Warthog flying above that I can call an airstrike in on him. 20 miller miniguns, yeah. <laughs> right. is, is this from like you know, a, uh, a video game? No, the A-10, A-10 Warthog, which is still in, in, in uh, it's a, it's a close, close support air, combat aircraft that's used by the Air Force. Yeah, these these things are they're ridiculous. They 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 eat tanks for breakfast, but they they do it by firing a crap load of ammo at it. They also carry hailfire missiles for backup. <sighs> so yeah, I want a couple of those flying above, and when I get into trouble, I'll just call them well, in. Of course, if you really want a weapon, you want a Ripley Mark One, <laughs> the ultimate BFG. <laughs> oh, okay. Because you want to be sure. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I think that's I think that's great. I think we better call it. <laughs> uh, folks, yeah. uh, I'll recommend actually. I make a recommendation. If you are looking for weapons for your D twenty game, you, you want to see if you can still if it's, if you can find it a copy of the D twenty Modern Weapons Locker by Keith Potter. It's uh, officially licensed. It has a whole bunch of uh, weapons in it, of various uh, pistols, rifles, machine guns. Every weapon we mention is in this book. So that would be one thing to pick up. It also has uh, rules on hollow points and glazer rounds, which are the safety rounds we mentioned earlier. So you can you, ha- you have a resource here to work with. drive through RPG has a lot of PDF-type we- uh, weapons and equipment-type guides that are very inexpensive. Yeah. Uh, that's also a good resource, it, especially if you don't mind having equipment that is in PDF, which I don't. Uh, I, I think it's great to be able to carry 15, 20 books and especially if the PDFs are searchable. Yeah, Green, Ronin, Green nice. Ronin put out a uh, weapons book also, which actually covers some of the same weapons uh, and, and some slightly different roles. So you can look at either one and pick the ones you like the best. And and, and I have to pimp it just because I've always loved it, even though we, we talked about this earlier, that it's it's a it's a pain to use and you kind of basically got to be a, a ballistics expert to understand it. But it's really a great book. is is uh, Guns, Guns, Guns by um, BTRC. Right. Um, th- that's just a really cool book, but you really have to be studious and be ready to sit down with your calculator. Well, it's good for comparing we- one weapon to another, yeah. figuring out how you could apply one weapon to another game system. 
Right, and it has a lot of conversions in it so that you right. can get an idea of, you know, if I wanted to convert this weapon from this game to, to this to this other game without winging it, without actually, you know, by actually doing it, um, it's, it's a great book for that. But, you know, hey, Bruce, I wanted to uh, – and John, I want to um, – I think we should we should put a challenge out to our, our listeners to have them email us with how they they equip their characters. Oh yeah, yeah we are, we are That'd curious. Be great. What is what is your team you know take out on the platform? Are your teams as yeah. Anil's my first my first team, which basically had a loading plan for everything on their on their jeep and their trailer, or are you guys sort of like well I got this and got that? So we want we want to know what what you guys carry. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, do you are you a guy that goes into battle with a pistol? Um, do you do you play one of these weird characters who refuses to use guns and will only use melee weapons, or you know, are you are you Rambo? Do you do you, you know you sling an M60 over you know under each arm and and, and blast away? Right. Are you, are you like my players that uh, drive around in the Muscovy armored personnel carrier with no external weaponry, so that it isn't considered to be a threat to the to the natives? But then they're loaded for bear on the inside, and they come running out, you know, firing machine guns. And I've seen the BRDMs, and I've seen the vehicles that like the Muscovy. They're frightening things. I'm, you know, concerned. I'm not frightened. Not not threatening. <laughs> well, I don't know why. You'd have to explain why well, you think that, John, big. because it's just it's it's because they're, they're big. big. Well, they're, they're, they're smaller than a than a Taiga Noga wagon. Designed to be threatening looking. I mean, when the Russians designed them, they made them to look badass. So they are they are kind of threatening looking to folks. Okay. Well, so they just paint, so. you paint some flowers on the side. Yeah, of it. you know, camo it. You know, it, it, it <laughs> now it disappears. <laughs> paint it pink. I remember, yeah. Muscovies but, are diesel and they're Russian, which means you can drop them off a cliff, flip them back on their wheels again. And they'll just drive off again. <laughs> Right. Well, that's one reason why we used them was because it was one of the very first vehicles in our campaign that we could justify saying, hey, we took this vehicle from the 1940s. It was easy to convert it over to diesel only, no electricity uh, for use on the fringe pass. Yeah. So they and they, they they've gotten a lot of use out of it. They made a lot of modifications to it. You know, it has its limitations, but generally speaking, uh, it, it managed to uh, save their butts a couple of times versus the pirates because they you know they, they weren't hit as long as they weren't hit by the twenty caliber uh, cannon. Uh, it could it could basically shrug off those fifty caliber shells pretty well. Hey, let's not get too off. Strong, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. A strong Soviet vehicle. <laughs> Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We have a vehicle show coming oh, up. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we got vehicles. You know, something to keep 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 an eye on. Well, thank you once again for joining us for the Fringeworthy broadcast. Uh, we hope that the tips and the equipment that we just discussed uh, will be helpful to you in your campaign. At least make you aware of some of the options you have when you're faced with uh, less than friendly people on the fringe paths or off the fringe paths. Uh, we hope that you survive until our next podcast, and we look forward to seeing you then. Until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. <laughs> I'm gonna go
no commercial distribution or derivative works are allowed. You must fully attribute this work to TriTag Games. This podcast is solely the property of TriTag Games Incorporated.